Let's just get going here. Every few years, there is some uh, word or expression that catches on that seems to spread like wildfire across our culture. Let me give you a few examples. You know, they kind of come, and then they go, and you get sick of them. You get to where you've heard them so many times. Let me give you a few examples. Here's one, end game. How many of you are familiar with that phrase, end game? Okay, good. Uh, Here's another one. People will say, at the end of the day... How many of you have heard that one? Yep. Okay, good, good. Uh, Here's one. I see this on social media a lot, and I have to admit that I really don't understand what it means. uh, Hashtag squad goals. Do you guys see that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Can anybody explain to me what that means? You can do it later after the service. A few years ago, uh, a word that used to carry negative implications became a positive buzzword uh, in popular culture, and it's the word disruptive. In the tech world, if you wanted to raise money for your startup, you had to prove that your idea would disrupt an existing market and create a whole new market for your product. Think, for instance, as an example of, a, of something disruptive. Think about iTunes and how that disrupted the music industry. And then the word uh, sort of uh, its, its usage, usage moved to uh, marketing. Companies started advertising their products as disruptive products. And then, it, and then it moved into the classroom. Schools started promoting the idea that good education is disruptive. And I got to think that if it can be used in all of those contexts, there's no reason that it can't also be used to describe how God works in the lives of people. In fact, it turns out that God has been using disruptive events to drastically alter the course of people's lives for better throughout human history. And what do I mean by a disruptive event? Here's what I mean. A disruptive event is a contradiction to your model of reality. It's a contradiction to your model of reality. Something inexplicable happens that you never thought possible. Something that is so disorienting that it can actually be terrifying because it it sort of forces you to re-examine all of uh, your previously held assumptions about life. Well, I want to take you this morning to the single most disruptive event in in all of human history. And in fact, I have to tell you that it is so disruptive that many people throughout history refuse to believe that it has ever happened. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to turn with me to Mark chapter 16. Uh, Mark chapter 16, and I'm very happy to tell you, those of you who have uh, been with us for some time, very happy to tell you that we've finally come to the end of the book of Mark. We have been in this series for so long that some of you who have kids who are seniors in high school this year... Uh, They were born when we started this series, or at least it probably feels that way to some of you. Mark chapter 16, and uh, here's the context for those of you who are new to City Church. And by the way, welcome to those of you who are listening to us uh, through our podcast. We're glad to have you joining us too. Jesus has been crucified on a Roman cross, and he has died. A man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea has provided Jesus with a proper burial, and he's placed his body inside of a tomb, in the side of a rock, and then he covered that tomb with a stone to keep the animals and to keep the grave robbers away. Now, all of that took place 
on a Friday, on Friday of Holy Week. Now as we open chapter 16, it is Sunday morning, very early, just around dawn. And now that the Sabbath is over, three women come to do the final work of anointing Jesus' body. They couldn't do it on the Sabbath. That was uh, any kind of work was not allowed. It was prohibited on the Sabbath. So now after the Sabbath, they come to do the final work of anointing Jesus' body. Let's start at verse 1 of Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I just want to take an informal poll. How many of you would agree with me that seeing and talking to an angel in the tomb of a dead person who has been raised from the dead qualifies as a disruptive event? Raise your hands. (laughs) I think so. Exactly. First, it clearly contradicts these ladies' model of reality. Dead men don't come back to life. And second, they're appropriately terrified. In fact, what's interesting is that the words, he says, he says uh, Mark says in verse 8 that they were trembling and bewildered. Those two words are the words from which we get, uh, those Greek words are the words from which we get the words traumatized and ecstatic. So it's kind of a combination of things. These ladies were traumatized on the one hand, ecstatic on the other about the possibilities. So it's a disruptive event for these ladies. But I also want to make the point that if the resurrection is true, it's not just a disruptive event for these ladies. It's a disruptive event for all of us here today, too. I mean, a resurrection hasn't happened since this one. And I want to show you three ways this morning that the resurrection is a disruptive event to you, to me, to all of us here today. Not just these women, but to all of us. And here's the way I'm going to do it. We're going to say, first of all, that it is a disruptive event intellectually. Second, it is disruptive ideologically. And third, it is disruptive personally. Intellectually, ideologically, and personally. All right? That's where we're going this morning. Let me start with this. First, it is disruptive intellectually. And by that, I mean just this, that the resurrection blows our our mental categories, doesn't it? It contradicts our model of reality about life and death. However, Mark says it happened, and so do all of the other gospel writers. And because it did, because if it did happen, its implications are so profound 
It is of first priority that every single human being intellectually scrutinizes the evidence for the resurrection. I mean, no other religion claims a resurrection. And I want you to listen to me now. It is more important to intellectually scrutinize the evidence for the resurrection than the choice of the college that you will attend, students. It is more important, men and women, than the choice of your career. It is more important than the choice of a spouse. The implications of the resurrection make it of first importance that you intellectually scrutinize the evidence for the resurrection. And I want you to notice, please, please notice this, that Jesus doesn't just ask these women to take the resurrection on just faith. Do you understand that the stone over Jesus' tomb wasn't rolled away for Jesus to get out? Uh, He didn't need that. The stone was rolled away to let these women and through them, us, to come in and take a good, hard look at the evidence. Which is what the angel says to these women in verse 6. He says, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He says, he is risen. He is not here. And then he says this. Underline that first word. He says, see, underline the word see, see the place where they laid him. Now, understand that this angel, of course, is only speaking what Jesus has told him to speak. And the word that he uses in verse 6 that is translated see is uh, the Greek word horao, which means um, more than just to physically look at something, right? I mean, in Greek, they had a lot of different words that they could use uh, for the word see. The one that he uses here Uh, for the word see, is one that means far more than just to physically look at something, okay? What he means, this particular word, the reason he chooses this word, is that hara'o means to comprehend, to understand, to discern the meaning of something that you have scrutinized, that you have looked at very, very closely. And so, the angel here is inviting this, this young man in the white robe is an angel, We know that from the other gospel accounts. He's inviting these women to intellectually scrutinize the empty tomb because he knows that this is an intellectually disruptive event for them that contradicts their model of reality. And of course, it's it's disruptive to us too. It contradicts our model of reality. And even though we couldn't be there with these women to physically scrutinize the evidence, Mark gives us four things in this passage that we can scrutinize intellectually so that we can also see, not just physically see, but comprehend, understand the significance of it, and verify in the manner that these three women did. Let me give you, let me give you four things that Mark does real quickly here under the, under the umbrella of, uh, of the, the idea that this is disruptive intellectually. Let me give you four things that Mark does that allows us to see, to intellectually scrutinize the evidence for the resurrection. First, Mark does not hide the fact that women were the first to discover Jesus' empty tomb. Now, those of you who are with us, we talked about this last week, that nothing in that culture would have been less convincing. In fact, it would have been more problematic to the credibility of the resurrection 
Nothing would have been less convincing than having women be the first to discover it in that culture. Because in, in, in the first century, women were not credible witnesses. They were, they were marginalized. They weren't educated. They, they would have been given no credibility at all. Okay? And yet Mark puts these women up front and center stage. He wants us to see the significance of that. That if he's just making all of this up, if this is, if this is just a made-up story, Mark would have never had women be the first witnesses. He would have had men be the first witnesses. But he doesn't hide that. He puts it right out there for us to see. Here's the second thing that he does. He repeats the names of these women three different times. If you go back to chapter 15, verse 40, he, he, he mentions these three women by name. He does it in verse 47 of chapter 15, and he does it in verse 1 of chapter 16. Mentions them all by name three different times. Now, why does he do that? Here's the reason. Because when Mark wrote this, remember, it's only 20 to 30 years after the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What does that mean? That means that some or all of these women were still alive. He's saying to his readers, Don't take this on faith. Go ask those ladies. And he mentions them all by name. Go ask Mary. Go ask Salome. Go ask them all. Ask them. Ask them if what I'm saying, if what I'm writing about here is true. And you see, if Mark were making these things up, these women would have been able to contradict him. And Jesus' movement would have never gotten off the ground. And we wouldn't be here this morning discussing it. Here's the third thing he does. He includes detail that only eyewitnesses give. For instance, in verse 5, Mark says, and I, uh, you may have noticed this, uh, he says, as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. The first time I read that, I thought, why in the world does he say the right side? What difference does that make? I called a friend of mine in our church who is a uh, retired FBI agent, and he specialized during his career in interviewing and interrogating people. And I asked him, you know, I said, what difference does it make that, um, you know, someone that claims to be an eyewitness gives details about the specific event? And what he said was, he said, a person who gives generalities is likely trying to hide something. Eyewitnesses give details that can be verified by others. And so Mark Mark is saying to his original readers, again, he's saying, go ask these women. They noticed that the guy was on the right side. See, women notice details. They get that. Men don't notice. My wife, every time my kids would come home from a date or something, she would ask them, well, what did she wear? What kind of shoes was she wearing? What did she eat? And my kid's answer was always, I don't know. But Amy would have noticed this stuff, lady. You want to know details. These ladies noticed these details. They gave it to Mark. They say, you're sitting on the right side. So they give details that uh, only eyewitnesses give. And then here's the third thing. Mark doesn't whitewash the women's reaction to this uh, subversive, excuse me, this disruptive event. He says in verse 8, Trembling and bewildered, bewildered, the women went out, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now think about that for just a moment. 
These women have been told explicitly by the angel to go tell the disciples, "Uh uh-uh, they don't do it. They're scared to death. They're afraid. They're like, we just encountered an angel in a tomb of a man who's been raised from the dead. We're not going. We need a stiff drink. Where's the first place we can get one? You know, because they're scared to death. They don't say to the angel, whatever thou asketh, we shall do with, kind sir. They don't say that. They're like, let's get out of here. Now, if you think about it for just a moment, this doesn't look good. If you're trying to make up a story about something as disruptive as the resurrection, it doesn't look good if the first witnesses to the story are so scared that they disobey what the angel just told them to do. And so Mark is saying, in all of this, he's saying, I know this is hard to believe. I know it's intellectually disruptive. So be skeptical about it. Scrutinize it. To his original readers, he was saying, go ask these three women. Look, look at the evidence. See, hurao, see all of the evidence and have the intellectual integrity to allow the evidence to change your model of reality, okay? So here's what, I'm, here's what I'm trying to get at, is that the resurrection is disruptive to you, to me. It was to these women. It is to everybody who encounters it. It is disruptive intellectually. But I also want you to see that, this, that the resurrection is disruptive ideologically, ideologically. Now, what do do I mean by that? Why do I say that? Well, I want you to notice what the angel tells these women in verse 7. He says in verse 7, But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Now, I want you to just just think about this for a minute. Those of you who have been with us, do you remember the disciples and what happened to the disciples? You remember this? Each of them abandoned Jesus at his point of greatest need. As he's being tortured, as he's being crucified, all of his disciples, the guys that have been with him for three and a half years, I mean, day in, day out, they run for the hills out of fear for their own lives. Even though Jesus had been telling them over and over, we see this from chapter 9 on, he's been telling them over and over that he's going to die, and if they want to follow him, they will have to suffer too. He gave them plenty of forewarning. And all of his closest friends still abandoned him at his point of greatest need. And yet, Jesus says through the angel that he still wants the disciples to come to him anyway. Now, here's why I say that this is disruptive ideologically. If Jesus worked off of the same ideology that the rest of the world operates off of, here is what he would have had uh, the angel say to these men. Something like this. He would have said, tell those no good cowards that they can stay away from me because I'm better off without them. I don't need them in my movement. I'll find better people. But he doesn't say that. Through this angel, the fact that Jesus is saying to this angel, tell them to come and see me. 
Jesus is telling them, I want you to be part of my movement in spite of what happened. In other words, he's forgiving them before they have even repented. Do you see that? And then I want you to also notice this this, this thing about Peter. Did you notice that he says, that the angel says, tell the disciples and Peter. Like he, he didn't have to say and Peter. Peter was one of the disciples, you know. He's, he's a subset of the superset, which is the disciples. So he doesn't have to say it, but he does. He calls Peter out by name. Why does he do that? Well, again, those of you who've been with us throughout this series, you'll remember that Jesus Jesus, when he told the disciples that they would all abandon him at his point of need, Peter specifically was like, he was like, no way, not me. Even if all these other 11 cowards, even if they run, I'm not going to leave you. I'm in all the way to the death, Jesus. Like he was so convinced of his courage and his loyalty. But what happened? Some of you know. While Jesus is being tried, a girl in the courtyard of the chief priest, Peter follows all the way to that point, but, when, but, but he gets into the courtyard of the chief priest, and a girl, a girl recognizes him as a disciple of Jesus, and Peter denies that he even knows Jesus, and he runs for his life. Can you imagine what Peter would have felt When these women showed up telling the disciples, hey, Jesus is alive and he wants you to come talk to him. He wants you to come see him. He wants you to be part of his movement. Can you imagine what you would have felt if you were Peter and had failed so miserably after your big pronouncement of courageous support? I think you would have felt something like this. Listen, listen, you guys, you guys, you guys, you guys all go ahead pretty certain he doesn't mean me. And so for that reason, Jesus tells the angel to mention Peter specifically by name. And then here's the real kicker of the whole thing. Peter becomes the leader of Jesus' movement, the main man, the boss the main guy. He is the leader of the whole movement. Why? Why? Here's the deal. To Jesus, the guy who failed the worst is the guy who will experience the deepest repentance and the deepest appreciation of the grace of Jesus, which will also make him the best leader for Jesus' movement. Now, I said, again, I, I know, I said that the resurrection is disruptive ideologically. And, and part, here's a, another reason that I say that, is that the ideology of this world, and make no mistake, it is an ideology. The ideology of this world is that you find happiness and meaning in life through strength and through deservedness. That's how you make it in this world. How do you get a promotion at work? By demonstrating that that you can do the job, by measuring up, by working hard, and by doing a good job. What do you put on your resume? If you want a job, do you put all your failures or do you put all of your successes? Of course, you put all of your successes. 
What do you brag about to your friends? Do you brag about your failures or do you brag about your successes? Of course, your successes. That's the ideology of this world. That you make it, that you're happy, that you find happiness in life. You find meaning in life by being deserving, by, uh, by, by, uh, by being up to the task, by doing very well, by being successful. Okay? Religion also works off of that same ideology. Uh, let, me, let me show it to you this way. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Religion says this. Religion says, I believe plus I obey and therefore I am saved. Now, do you notice what it's saying? What religion says, what every other religion in the world says, is that I'm saved because I obey. I'm saved because I have my act together. I'm saved because I measure up to the standards of my religion. I'm saved because I'm disciplined enough and I'm good enough and I'm strong enough to follow the rules. And so I deserve to be saved. But the gospel works off of a completely different ideology. Instead of strength and deservedness, the gospel says that you find life through weakness and grace. Here's what the gospel says. We'll put it up against religion so you can see the difference clearly. The gospel says, I believe equals I am saved. Therefore, because I'm saved, yes, I obey. But I want you to notice that unlike religion, my obedience isn't part of my salvation. Did you see that? Can you see that clearly? Nod your heads if you can see that clearly. Yes? Can you see? All right. I can't see you nod your heads. Say yes. We see it. Okay, good, good. Salvation in Christianity as opposed to every other religion in the world is not about my obedience to a set of rules. Salvation in Christianity is through believing in Christ's obedience. Not mine. Why? Because I couldn't obey enough. The standards of God's perfection for me, for you, they're all crushing. You try to live according to God's standards of perfection, they will crush you. You cannot do it. They are crushing. They will grind you into the ground. You will live with constant guilt and shame. You can't do it. And so in Christianity, salvation comes by accepting your weakness, admitting your failures, admitting your inability, and admitting your need for a Savior. And that is so profoundly difficult for us, isn't it? I mean, we will do anything we can to keep from having to admit that we're wrong, that we failed. And the reason that we do that, the reason it's so hard, is because, again, the ideology of the world, the ideology that is a part, of, a part of us from birth and that is reinforced every single day by the world we live in, is that it's wrong to be wrong, it's weak to be weak, it's strong to be strong. Life comes through deservedness. That's the ideology of this world. But please notice that the item on Peter's moral resume that most qualified him for the role as leader of Jesus' movement was his failure. Why? Because people who have failed, who have fallen off the platforms that they've built for themselves of success and strength and deservedness, 
Those people have the capacity to understand their weakness, to understand the costliness of Jesus' love and the radicalness of his grace in a way that other people do not. They have the ability to be ruthlessly honest about their failures and their weaknesses without being crushed by them. Because they also know that they are infallibly and endlessly loved with those failures and weaknesses by the only one whose love really matters and who demonstrated the extent of his love by dying for them on a cross. Do you understand this? The greatest leaders, the greatest counselors, the best parents, the best lovers, they're all people who are the biggest repenters. Because they understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the stamp that validates that Jesus' death on the cross means that their sins have been paid in full and that they are loved by their Creator. And so you can see why I say that this passage is disruptive ideologically. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection... It contradicts our model of reality that life is about strength and deservedness instead of weakness and grace. So it's disruptive intellectually and it's disruptive ideologically. Finally, let me just, let me end with this one. This passage is disruptive personally. And what I mean is this. That after inviting these women to scrutinize the evidence for Jesus' resurrection, we've talked about this, the the angel tells these women, go tell the disciples about it, but they don't do that. We said that earlier. They don't do that, do they? Not right away, at least. Mark says, trembling and bewildered, traumatic and ecstatic. The women went out and they fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And then Mark's gospel ends on that. Now that's a very odd way to end the gospel, don't you think? I mean, like the other three gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, they don't end like that. Like the other three gospels end with the women telling the disciples and Peter about Jesus' resurrection, just as the angel had commanded them to do. This is an odd way, don't you think, to end this particular gospel? In fact, it's so odd that in some of your Bibles you may notice that um, there are more verses after verse 8. And then, like, there's probably a note. You know, like, there's in some of your Bibles you'll see that there's, like, verses 9 through 20. And then there's, like, a little note there that says something to the effect of that the earliest and best manuscripts don't have these verses in them. Some of you see that in your Bibles? Yeah. Here's what happened. It appears that somewhere along the way, a scribe, uh, a scribe was a person whose job it was, you know, they didn't have copy makers back then, so a scribe, his, his job was to copy the words of the text, and then, you know, they would pass them on so that new, other people could read them, okay? And they were very careful about how they went about this. You, you need to study that sometime. It's fascinating. But somewhere along the way, a scribe whose job it was to just copy the book, he was so bothered by the ending of Mark that he thought, I need to fix this. we got to end on a better note. And so he tries to fix it. I kept asking myself as I, as I read this, why does Mark end his gospel in such an odd way? 
And it just, you know, it's one of those things, I don't know if you ever had these kind of things happen to you, but it's one of those things that just stuck with me all week long. I mean, it was like a, you know, it was like a grain of sand and an oyster or whatever it is, you know, that, what, what is, what, what, how, do oysters create pearls? Is that how that works? Yeah, a grain of sand and an oyster creates a pearl. Okay. So it's like that kind of thing. And I just kept, you know, it bugged me, and I just kept, why is he doing this? Why does he end his gospel this way? And then finally, as I studied it and thought about it more, it finally, it finally hit me. And I'll tell you about that next week. No, I'm kidding you. I'll tell, I'll tell you right now. Uh, <laughs> Mark wants us to see that these women had to process all that they had seen, if even for just a short time, and they had to make a decision. What do we do with this news? Do we just keep it to ourselves? Or do we go tell people, do we go tell people about it? And of course, you and I both know that the reason that we're here today talking about it is that these three women, they went and told the disciples about it. And that's why we celebrate Jesus on Sunday mornings, the first day of the week, because he was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. But you see what Mark does, the reason that he ends his gospel this way is that it forces you now to enter the story. Because do you understand? We're the next chapter. We're the next chapter of the gospel of Mark. Mark forces us to ask ourselves, each of us, what will I do now that I've been let in on this news? Will you flee in fear and become silent? Will the story die with you? Or will you obediently follow and proclaim Jesus raised from the dead, crucified and raised from the dead, regardless of the cost? That's what these women were afraid of. They understood the cost. And after processing that, they said, we're in. And they went and they told the disciples. The resurrection is disruptive intellectually. It is disruptive ideologically. And it is disruptive personally in that it forces you to make a decision about your involvement in the mission of the gospel. Throughout Mark's gospel, Mark has been answering two questions for us. In the first half of the gospel of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, Mark answered the question, who is this Jesus? And the answer is, Jesus is the Messiah. And then the second question that he answers in chapters 9 through 16 is, what does it mean to follow him? And here's the answer. You're not going to like it. The answer is that if you choose to follow him, you just need to know that you will suffer persecution like Jesus did. Are you in or are you out? It is a personal decision that you will have to make. We thought it appropriate 
to end this series, speaking of personal decisions, we thought it appropriate to end this series by celebrating communion together. And in communion, you may know that we proclaim together both the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ and our hope in His resurrection as well. And the way that we do this is that we have our ushers come up, and ushers, if you would, go ahead, you can get the elements and uh, you can begin to pass them out. They're going to pass them out to you. If you would hold them, we'll take the elements together. But here's, here's what I want to say to you. Taking communion, it's not just a, it's just not something that we do just for doing it because it's church. When you take communion, you are proclaiming your belief in your weakness and your need for a Savior. If you don't believe that, don't take communion because that's what it's about. When you take communion, you're saying, yes, I believe I'm weak. I believe I need a Savior. And I believe that the way, through, the way to life in this world is through weakness and grace, not through strength and deservedness. Think about that very clearly before you take the elements of communion and hold them in your hand. And then we'll talk more about the fact that what they symbolize, these elements, are that the body of Jesus was broken and the blood of Jesus was shed for your sins. And that the resurrection of Jesus Christ validates His death on the cross as the payment for your sins. If you believe these things, take the elements, hold them in your hands. We'll take them together in just a moment. If you don't believe it, it's okay. Maybe you feel like there's more intellectual scrutinizing that you need to do about the resurrection. That's fine. Don't take it if you don't believe it. But if you believe those things, proclaim them through communion with us.